Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 10th. In today's news, the Secretary of Defense's termination underscores President Trump's insistence on absolute loyalty. The chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee steps aside after heavy losses. And Pfizer's vaccine could be cleared by mid-December. But first, the big idea. Attorney General Bill Barr gave federal prosecutors the green light on Monday to pursue any allegations of vote tabulation irregularities before results are certified. He indicated that he has already done so in a few specific instances. This major reversal of long-standing Justice Department policy drew widespread internal and external criticism because it fuels unfounded claims of massive election fraud being pushed by Donald Trump. Richard Pilger, the head of the Justice Department's election crimes branch, stepped down from his position in protest over Barr's latest directive. Sources tell Matt Zapatosky and Devlin Barrett that Barr first broached a similar idea some weeks ago, and political leadership in the Justice Department's criminal division, of which the election crimes branch is a part, pushed back hard. These same officials were blindsided last night when Barr's two-page memo went out. Pilger emailed colleagues, quote, Having familiarized myself with this new policy and its ramifications, I must regretfully resign. Barr seemed to take aim at previous guidance from the Justice Department's election crimes branch that said prosecutors should not, in most instances, take overt steps in voter fraud or related investigations until after election results are in and certified. This guidance was designed to ensure that voters and state and local election officials, rather than the federal government, get to decide the results, and that if prosecutors wanted to deviate from that norm, they would at least first have to consult with public integrity prosecutors in the election crimes branch. But Barr wrote that the previous directive, which has been on the books for decades, was, quote, never a hard and fast rule. Vanita Gupta, who is the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division during the Obama administration, explains that this new memo amounts to scaremongering, that will allow officials to send letters and take other public steps that might suggest there's voter fraud in a particular state when in fact there is none. Inside the Justice Department, many officials, including conservatives, fear that Barr's move is going to entice outsiders to come to federal law enforcement with specious claims and then empower U.S. attorneys across the country who were appointed by Trump to bypass consultation with public integrity prosecutors and announce publicly that they're investigating these specious claims. This could potentially undercut the legitimacy of the election and the American people's confidence in the results. And I must emphasize, Barr's directive was heavily caveated and did not offer one scintilla of evidence of any election fraud. Meanwhile, over on Capitol Hill, Top Republicans are standing back and standing by as Trump seeks to sow doubt in the Democratic process itself. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said on the floor yesterday that the president is, quote, 100% within his rights to pursue recounts and litigation. Other GOP officials also rushed to bolster Trump's case, including the two senators from Georgia who demanded the resignation of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a fellow Republican, 
after he said there was no evidence of widespread fraud in that state, an objectively true statement. And the Republican attorneys general of about a dozen states threw their support behind a legal effort pending before the U.S. Supreme Court to throw out all mail ballots in Pennsylvania that were received after Election Day, a small number of votes that state officials said would not be enough to change the outcome. Behind the scenes, Trump advisors and allies are increasingly resigned to Joe Biden taking office. But few so far are actively discouraging the president or his campaign from pursuing all legal paths to contest the results. One senior, senior Republican official explained to Josh Dossie why they're playing along with Trump's dangerous game. This person said, quote, what is the downside of humoring him for this little bit of time? No one seriously thinks the results will change. This senior GOP leader added that Trump went golfing this weekend and added, quote, it's not like he's plotting how to prevent Biden from taking power on January 20th. Meanwhile, Rome burns. Also, Housing Secretary Ben Carson tested positive yesterday for the coronavirus after attending the White House election night party last week. Same thing with top Trump campaign advisor David Bossie, who also was at the party and tested positive. Even though he's not a lawyer, Trump has tapped Bossie to lead his post-election legal battles, and he's been in and out of the campaign's headquarters several times over the last week. He may have exposed several others on the campaign to the contagion. And the White House has issued orders to agencies across the government to repel Biden's landing teams. These so-called beachhead teams from Biden's camp are supposed to be preparing for a peaceful transfer of power. Officials across the government have prepared briefing books and carved out office space for the incoming Biden team, but they were told on Monday that the transition will not be recognized until the Democrats' victory is certified by the General Services Administration, that low-profile agency that officially starts the transition. But GSA Administrator Emily Murphy, the Trump political appointee and proven loyalist I told you about yesterday, refused for the third consecutive day to sign the necessary paperwork. In an indication of growing frustration among Biden officials, the transition team organized a call with reporters last night to lay out a list of the government services that Murphy's decision is denying them. Those include State Department facilitated calls with foreign leaders and access to secure facilities where they can review classified information. Biden is evaluating his legal options and may sue to get the certification. Bigger picture. Historians tell us that Trump's obstinance and intransigence could make this the most contentious transition since Franklin Roosevelt defeated Herbert Hoover in a 1932 landslide. During that testy transition, Hoover kept trying to pressure the president-elect into fighting the Great Depression by supporting the very policies that he had just campaigned against and which the voters had overwhelmingly rejected. Roosevelt, who'd promised Americans a new deal to get the country back on its feet, said no deal to endorsing the Hoover program. Back then, inaugurations weren't held until March 4th. That's the date that was set in the early days of the Republic when transportation was difficult. So Hoover was a lame duck for four months. Just as Trump claims that our country is turning the corner on the coronavirus, Hoover kept insisting during the transition back then that the economy was recovered. Yet unemployment kept rising and got to nearly 25% during the transition and banks were failing across the country. After Roosevelt took office, a constitutional amendment was passed to move the date of the inauguration up to January 20th. And that's the big idea. 
Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper via tweet, of course, ousting his fourth Pentagon chief on Monday and installing Chris Miller, who was only recently named director of the National Counterterrorism Center, to become acting secretary. Esper's firing plunges the Pentagon into a new period of leadership upheaval as it tries to manage this unusual transition period fraught with not just political tension, but real potential security risks. Democrats and independents criticized firing Esper, saying the abrupt change will endanger American security at an already vulnerable moment. Esper was mostly aligned with the commander-in-chief on major foreign policy issues, but he had clashes with Trump over his steps to draw the military into partisan politics. Chief among those occurred in June, when Trump demanded that thousands of active-duty troops be dispatched on the streets of Washington amid protests over the police killing of George Floyd, Trump wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act. Several senior officials told our Pentagon correspondents, Missy Ryan, Dan Lamoth, and Paul Sonny, that Esper's public opposition to using troops drew the most fierce response that they had ever seen from the president. While West Wing aides talked Trump out of firing Esper that week, the president has repeatedly raised the issue ever since, believing that the defense chief was trying to embarrass him and damage his reelection prospects. In recent months, Esper has rarely been allowed to see or talk to the president, even though he oversees the military. Esper's departure is the first in what some officials expect will be a series of senior-level ousters, possibly including FBI Director Chris Wray. The president is eager for some score-settling now that he's lost, and he wants to lash out. In recent days, the Trump administration has also fired the head of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and forced out the number two official at the U.S. Agency for International Development, which was a move aimed at keeping the agency's head, a Trump appointee, in place under the Vacancies Act. John McEntee, the director of the Presidential Personnel Office, has told political appointees at agencies across the government that they will be fired if they are caught looking for jobs. And CNN is reporting that Trump may also soon fire CIA Director Gina Haspel because she will not agree to declassify super-sensitive intelligence aimed at embarrassing the Obama administration. Haspel says doing so would compromise sources and methods, and she's willing to lose her job over it. Number two, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos will not seek a second term as the leader of the House Democratic campaign arm. In fact, she will exit party leadership altogether. Following historic 2018 gains, Bustos pledged to hold on to those Trump-friendly seats and push Democratic gains further into the suburbs, adding to the 15-seat majority that Democrats had after the midterms. But last week's results have cut deeply into that majority, with a net loss of four seats to Republicans so far, with a few more races yet to be called. In fact, Bustos herself was nearly a victim of the GOP surge, eking out a four-point win in a rural Illinois district after winning by more than 20 points in 2016 and 2018. Mike DeBonis reports that Bustos is facing bitter and angry recriminations from fellow Democrats who were blindsided by their losses. The underwhelming results have turbocharged long-simmering infighting between moderate Democrats and liberal members who have been critical of the DCCC's centrist messaging and recruiting practices. Bigger picture, despite Biden's win, Democrats remain anxious and divided. Moderates blame liberals for promoting socialism and proposals to defund the police. Liberals are warning Biden not to cozy up to Senate Republicans who are likely to retain their majority after the Georgia runoffs in January. Latino leaders are raising alarms about Biden's poor performance in some of their communities. 
Because both Biden and the GOP can claim successes, the outcome defies simple theories about the electorate and leaves Biden without full control of Congress or a unified direction for his party. As Senator Dick Blumenthal, the Democrat from Connecticut, told my colleague Sean Sullivan, quote, there are lessons, but I'm not sure what they are just yet. Number three, some good news. Pfizer announced on Monday that its experimental coronavirus vaccine is more than 90% effective. This sharply increased prospects that federal regulators will authorize the vaccine on an emergency basis as early as mid-December, and the first shots could be administered before the end of the year or early next year. The findings provided much-needed hope for our nation. It augurs well for other vaccines and could accelerate the timetable for reigning in the pandemic. But scientists also caution that any successful vaccine will still face obstacles, notably distribution to hundreds of millions of people. And you're going to need to get two inoculations, not just one, for it to be effective. Pfizer has projected having 50 million doses, enough for 25 million people, by the end of the year, and 1.3 billion doses in 2021. In other good news, last night the FDA approved Eli Lilly's antibody drug, which is a laboratory brew that imitates the immune system's attack on the virus. It's in the same family of medication as that experimental treatment that Trump got when he was at Walter Reed with COVID. But the initial scarcity of the drug and the logistical complexities of administering it could also make its immediate impact on the pandemic moot and raise questions about whether it's being distributed to people in the greatest need. Meanwhile, a troubling new CDC report this morning finds that nearly 10,000 patients who were admitted to U.S. hospitals for the coronavirus between March and July were readmitted to the same hospital within two months of their release. That amounts to nearly 10% of all hospitalized patients. And it adds to the growing body of evidence that suggests that even people who technically recover from COVID may continue to struggle with complications long after the fact. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, November 10th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. Don't forget to wear a mask. I'll talk to you tomorrow.